Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for our third and final presentation for this afternoon. So if you would come back, take your seats, make yourselves comfortable once again. Our third speaker is the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, and he's been something of a rising star among the confessional Lutherans of our generation. I think he was a class behind me, and already he's an assistant uh, professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary. And I don't even think we graduated that long ago. So I remember him back then as the really scary smart guy in front of whom you didn't want to display your Lutheran ignorance. And I remember one of these uh, meetings that we used to get together and read uh, like uh, something from Luther and one of the students would present on what he, had, he uh, had learned from Luther. And I, I remember Adam distinctly making fun of us, even though he was part of this group, saying, you guys, you love your Luther so much, when in fact he just wants you to shut Luther and go read your Bibles for a while. <laughs> All right, before he joined the seminary faculty, during the autumn of 2019, he pastored Mount Calvary in Litiz. Littitz, okay, Pennsylvania, and planted Concordia Lutheran Church in Myerstown, Pennsylvania. You've also probably have heard him on the popular podcast, A Brief History of Power, with two white guys, which he does with uh, Pastor Fisk. And he's a regular contributor on the Word Fickly Spoken podcast as well. Thanks be to God that he's agreed to come and to share his biblical wisdom on the three fortresses of the family, church, and community. Welcome, Reverend Dr. Coons. Thanks a lot. Um, I hope you guys can hear me all right. Uh, I'm used to shouting at men even younger than myself, so I can project. If I'm not loud enough, just go like this or shout yourself, and, and I'll speak louder, okay? Um, I'm also used for that reason to being interrupted by people who, at the time, know more than I do at the moment that they ask the question. So if that is, in fact, you on any given thing that I'm talking about today or tomorrow, just raise your hand, that's fine. I'll also leave some time for questions at the end. Um, what I want to talk about and what I sort of renamed in the presentation title is the three estates that Dr. McPherson referenced. Uh, I want to talk about them as fortresses, and I want to think about a fortress not so much as a place that you build in order to hide inside of, but that you build as you are expanding outward and as the Americans did as the frontier progressed westward from earliest times, you build in order to protect what you already have and what you are now building. So when we talk about fortresses, there's a way of thinking about that that I think is extremely familiar to many of us, whatever our age, and that is that we are sort of frightened of what is happening. It seems shocking, right? And every day, uh, whatever media platform you're on, you can find some fresh outrage. Uh, this is why Huck Finn, when he was talking about why he doesn't like to read, Huck Finn says, I hate them newspapers because they just make you depressed. That was a long time ago that he said that. I don't really think it's different now. The platform, the technologies are different. The reality is not. And so when you think about a fortress, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm scared, the world is scary, the world is horrifying, what will they do to my children? 
What will they do to my grandchildren? And then you want to sort of go inside somewhere, hide out, and camp out, and hope that the storm passes by. I think that's wrong for two reasons. One is, if you build the fortress, they will come to it. You won't be able to escape notice. They will know where you are, and they will find that fortress. You heard this already last year when the public education system realized that homeschooling might catch on a lot more. When kids, once going to a school is made optional, realize, I don't really like going to a school. I don't really like having to show up and wear a mask all the time. It makes me sad, or whatever the case might be. And so you began to get studies out from Harvard, now a very different institution than in 1959 and certainly in 1636, Harvard professors saying that homeschooling was dangerous, right? And you could plug into that because I really see just a distinction in delivery between what we call a Lutheran school and a Lutheran family homeschooling. They're both Lutheran schools. And the danger there is not that the kid goes to a building or wears a uniform or doesn't. The danger is that the child, God forbid, would actually end up a Lutheran when he grows up. That's what they're worried about. And so when they find that fortress, and they'll do the same, probably homeschooling and gun rights are things that have actually expanded over the past 40 years. When they find that, they will go after it. So they'll find your fortress if you think of your fortress as something you're fleeing into. It's also the case that I think it might be too late to flee into many things. And the reason that I think that is that we have, for a very long time, before I was born, before Pastor Flammy was born too, uh, he's right, he's, he's only a little older than I am, we have been a country that endorses infanticide. That's what I like to call it instead of abortion. So this is a country that has how many dead children in the name of what, and there was a long time when life went on somewhat normally if you yourself did not engage in such things. Now you must, you must bless them. And the extent to which such perversions of things obviously true, such as it's a human being, and it's a human being when the advertiser is advertising to expectant mothers, and it's a clump of cells when Planned Parenthood is advertising to expectant mothers. But things that are seemingly obvious, men are men, women are women, children are children, and are innocent of a crime that would merit capital punishment, these are increasingly going away, but I think they've been gone for a long time. The world has been upside down for a long time. And so fortresses that maybe we could have claimed or fled into no longer exist. It's why when talking about fresh outrages, if you must, I don't like when people use adjectives for uh, the opponents of Christ to say that they're stupid or crazy. Many of them are extremely intelligent. Many of them are very much in their right minds and very much know what they're doing. When the early church talked about persecution, it did not call its persecutors stupid or crazy. It talked instead about how Satan was a deceiver and a hater of mankind. Unlike Christ, 
He does not love man. Instead, he seeks to deceive him rather than give him truth. And he hates him, so he seeks man's destruction in any number of forms. So when we talk about fortresses today and tomorrow, we're talking about things we either are building or ought to build. And I will not largely be speaking, let's say in sort of military history terms, tactically. I don't think as a pastor it's my job or within my purview to figure out how to run all the different things that need to be built any more than it's a general or a commanding officer's job to do all the digging, all the fortifying, all the standing watch. God gives many gifts, many members, and we all need each other more than ever. But I will be speaking, let's say, strategically. That is, laying out some sort of vision of where we can and ought to go, using what Luther would describe as the three estates. And what we're talking about first is today family. And the reason we start there, there's sort of a practical reason that I've started there, and there's a biblical reason to start there. The practical reason, and I want to start here just because it's all within our experience, it's not something we haven't noticed, is that within pretty much any pastor's experience in the room, any educator's experience in the room, really anybody's experience in the room, you understand that people's problems usually stem, their deepest, most difficult problems will stem from either past or present or anticipated future family problems. It's why when Luther is talking about the fourth commandment, he talks about the fourth commandment as a kind of linkage between the tables of the law, meaning it's within the family that I, either, that I learn either to fear or not to fear God. It's within the family that I learn either to love or not to love my neighbor. And the things that I observe that, that are difficult, about most difficult, let's say, about being either a parish pastor or in dealing with young men at the seminary, especially the younger men, is that the family has been and is in free fall. And by this, I don't just mean rising rates of single motherhood or any sort of index you could come up with, many of which I don't want to bore you with things that I know are well known to you. But that even if, let's say, both parents are present, everyone is absent because everyone is on his device. So this is why, especially with younger men, it's an issue because a lot of them have never really been cognizant of the world prior to smartphones. And even prior to smartphones, we were babysat by the TV. We spent a lot of time, you know, trying to get dial-up internet to work so we could talk to our friends. Um, I'm aiming at a very specific demographic there, so um, if you missed it, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. Um, but the occupation of the family by technology is just one of the things that comes up frequently, and here's what I mean by that. That is that we're, it's not just physical presence with family that cherishes, that we cherish, that we long for when we don't have it. It's also that when the father is present, that he is a father who, in the way of the book of Proverbs, is actually able to guide and to advise. That if he doesn't, or if he can't, or if he won't, or some combination of all of that, 
there is massive confusion, unspoken and generally undiscussed, even in our churches, even by our pastors, even in things like premarital counseling, about how to be, how to carry out a life, how to lead a family. And this is speaking just of young men, let alone young women. So that the free fall doesn't, can't only be captured by statistics. Those are helpful, and they show you some of what's gone wrong. It's much more difficult to express even when it, they appear, the family appears to be intact and in church on a Sunday morning, what could and does go wrong and why. In its way, it's much more subtle, much harder to measure statistically. So we're going to say at least three things about the family, and not just on the basis of that practical reason, but for this theological reason, that the family, and we say this every time we conduct a marriage, the family is the institution God established in paradise. And so remarkably, whenever we consider a family, a man and a woman, and the children that God gives them, we are considering something that has actually survived the fall. It's impressive enough when you go around and you see something that's extremely old, whether where I come from, it's always buildings. You know, we don't have amazing rock formations, okay? The Appalachian Mountains are hills, foothills, okay? I'm being very humble here because I know I should. I was very impressed on the drive in here today, okay? Appalachian Mountains are unimpressive compared to the Rockies. I, it's, it's on record now, right? Um, so the buildings are old, or here you've got, you've got rock formations, and you know, even if we don't agree with the exact dating on the sign, they're obviously old, right? When you see something that is like that, it's sort of remarkable that it's still there. Understand that every single marriage is like that. It is an estate that is something that is not about me and it's not about her, it's about the thing that we are doing and are part of together. Similar to a pastor's ordination into a church which existed long before he was born and shall exist unto ages of ages, right? So when I enter into that estate and then I am given children in that estate, something is going on that has happened not only for all the generations before me in my own family, but has happened since the beginning of the world. Amazing. So for both the practical reason that we are in free fall and for the theological reason that there is so much that is so blessed about the family, we start with the family. And we'll say at least three things, um, and if Pastor Packer would keep me honest on time, that would be helpful, because I, I can be dishonest with time sometimes. The three things are these, and these are my adjectives, so I'm not locked onto them as, you know, straight out of the Bible, but I hope that they capture three aspects that we want to look at. That is that the family is natural in its makeup, it is central to human life, and it's crucial to the church's flourishing. And I'll explain them in that order, not because they're sort of easiest to hardest or vice versa, but simply because I think the very first one, that the family is natural in its makeup, it's naturally constituted, is a ground of appeal 
both evangelistically to people who recognize that we are different, and this is becoming increasingly self-evident that the church is distinguished from the world around it, and also that it helps order people's lives, their marriages, their child-rearing even now, natural. And what we mean by that is simply this. Here's, this is from Psalm 127. I'm just going to read the whole thing and then explain some aspects of it. Psalm 127 goes this way. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Natural in its makeup means that, according to this psalm and also according to the one that follows it, children come from a divine source. They are not the result of my choice, my thinking, my striving. That's true both in their origin, okay? That's true both in their origin, but also throughout life. That is that what I have in children and in having a family is an expression on a day-to-day -day basis of what St. Paul means when he asks rhetorically in 2 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you have not received? So when I say that the family is natural in its makeup, I mean that I recognize in the people I live with every single day the reality that my God, the only true God, unlike all the gods of the heathens, my God is a God who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives, richly and constantly, grace upon grace. That is that because it's natural, it is something that I receive. My daily reality is a, is a reality of receiving. That's why your pastor encourages you to pray regularly, because that's one of the things that you find out best and most when you do, is that you have nothing, nothing worthwhile, certainly not spouse and children that you have not received. So within the church, the idea that marriage and family the existence of children and their rearing is a matter of our engineering or our effort is why when Walter A. Meyer talked about birth control in the 1930s, he said it is paganism. The insight there was far more profound than maybe people understand. Paganism is defined by effort. Every non-Christian religion is a religion of the law. What I discover in everything that I receive is that my God is a God who gives. I am one who belongs to a religion of the gospel. And nature itself, the existence and the reality of family itself, reveals his goodness and his kindness, which Paul says in Romans 1, observation of nature should reveal just those things, his power and his divinity, his reality, if nothing else. But if I'm trying to preach the specific gospel to someone who does not believe, but notices that we are different, the appeal to nature 
as what constitutes a family is far more powerful because I don't have to get into this sort of ideological maze in order to explain why a Christian family is what it is to a non-Christian. It's very different from a concept like intersectionality. Let's just compare really briefly. Intersectionality says if you are a feminist, you should also be a supporter of Black Lives Matter in every point. If you're a supporter of Black Lives Matter, you should also support transgenderism, and on and on and on. It's not that this is logically coherent, but it's politically powerful, because it brings together otherwise totally disparate groups and says, you must all support each other. Okay. You recognize this not only as how academia works, but also as how the Democratic Party usually wins elections where and when it does. But if you stop for a second and you think, well, I'm a feminist, so I'm really, I'm really actually really invested in the existence of women. Like, that's kind of my whole thing, actually. And then the transgenderism, uh, let's say, apologist comes along and says, well, you know, I mean, women, what does that mean? You mean birthing persons? Do you mean... Um, uh, do you mean someone who identifies as a woman? No, I mean a woman. Well, no, you don't. No, you don't mean a woman. Uh, I'm a woman. I identify as a woman. It gets extremely convoluted extremely quickly. We may appear weird to such a society. In fact, I know we do. But what we say and what we teach about the family is very natural. Men, they're born. Women, they're born. Then they get older. Then a man and a woman come together. And they say the best thing that we could ever do is to stay together forever. This used to be even in country music, right? It's not anymore, but it used to be. Okay? And then they come together and they stay together forever because it's better for the kids because the marriage is about the kids. And then the world goes on. And all you have to appeal to is, isn't that the way life works? Don't you think so? It's really kind of simple and easy to say that the family is natural in its constitution. It is the way the world works. What I recognize specifically as a Christian is that even nature and the way it works is God's gift. The family is also central to life and to one's, let's say, life goals. And I would say if there is some other kind of heartache present even in our churches that is anywhere close to the lack of presence or guidance or advice, especially for young men, that leads to family formation, it would be the idea that we are all making decisions crucial decisions about our lives and ordering our lives around something other than the flourishing of our families. This is extremely difficult. It is extremely common. And nothing that I'm saying either today or tomorrow, especially to a group of people who came here to listen uh, to these lectures, is in any sense condemnatory. It's not the tone that I find St. Paul taking when he's speaking to the churches. Okay, 
Paul and Peter and John and the other apostles are always speaking in a way that is both clear and sometimes therefore you have to think about it and maybe things are going to change, but it's also encouraging, okay? Because harshness among ourselves is kind of the last thing we need. And internecine fighting is the last thing that we need. So what I'm about to say should be heard in that spirit. And that is that ordering our lives around something other than the flourishing, and by flourishing I don't just mean materially but also spiritually, the flourishing of our families is the absolute worst thing we can do or encourage. So by do, it's fairly obvious what I mean. I mean that our children are schooled as Lutheran Christians, that they know nothing else than the reality that God is their Father and Christ is their Redeemer and the Holy Spirit is indwelling the church, okay? That they are schooled as Lutheran Christians and that they are also trained to be not just faithful citizens in the sense of being able to know how to decide on issues to vote, but as being worthwhile, productive, and themselves productive of further Lutheran families. And this, for me, is probably most a problem for the general topic, education. Because it's within education that I not only learn how not to be a faithful Lutheran Christian, most readily and most often, but it's also education that steers my life goals in often unspoken ways towards something that's going to lead me to value usually money, but sometimes social status, all kinds of other things, but usually it's money, right? You look at the large catechism, the main competitor to God is mammon. It's usually money. So that my life begins to be ordered around not where will I find a good church, how can I honor my parents, basic commandment things. Again, almost nothing that we have to say either to ourselves or to the world is in any sense hard to grasp. These are basics. But ordering my life around God and his commandments and a life that would honor him and a family that would honor him and an extended family that would honor him, that that would be a priority. Well, I have many, 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 many institutions at all levels of education, formal and informal, that would teach me otherwise. And when and if our children and our grandchildren are willingly handed over to those institutions, or I think worst of all, when those institutions are our own and do the same work that the pagans could do for us, in many cases for free, then we are doing something that is not upholding the family and we should by no means be surprised when families collapse because they have been ordered all along, even if the name on the building of the institution was Lutheran or Concordia, if they are not ordered toward the flourishing of further Lutheran families, according to God's commandments, then what really are they here to do? What are they for? Scripturally, the reason that we have always had Lutheran schools, and again, delivery format, indifferent matter, homeschool, Lutheran school as here, indifferent matter, homeschooling is pretty unusual in our whole history. 
Lutheran school is very normal, but the point was not about do we have a one-room school or do we have a home school or something that our fathers made. The point was always about the fact that the reason we have Lutheran schools is first of all because we have Lutheran children who should be taught to honor God in every way. That's why. It could be secondarily evangelistic, that would be wonderful, and that worked in many, many cases, especially in the South, uh, in the Alabama field. But the primary reason that we had them was because life was understood to be centered around the family, not just in how you spend your time or that you turn off the TV or put down the phone when the family's present or that you try to eat dinner together on a very regular basis, but also, and long before they had those technological challenges, the family is central because I have been given children by God as a responsibility. Because it's his gift, it's my responsibility and not my choice. And my responsibility is that they be taught to honor him as I do. And I want to do that as constantly and as thoroughly and as clearly as I possibly can, thus Lutheran schools, thus Lutheran colleges. So the family which is natural, a matter of nature established by God in paradise, is and ought to be also central to our lives, such that I order my life around how my family can remain a part or if they are not yet, and this is the case for me personally, if some of them, extended family, not immediate, immediate family, we're in church all the time. I mean, I, we have the chapel at the seminary. It's, you know, they, they know, they know about church. But extended family, not yet in Christ, what I want for them is for them to understand who their creator is, who their redeemer is, who their sanctifier is. I want to order my life and things that I'm doing around them and their knowledge of him. So family is central to life's goals. If I achieve lots of things, it really doesn't matter if my extended family didn't, doesn't know Christ and I didn't even bother to tell them. It really doesn't matter. I didn't really understand that honestly, personally, until I realized the things that people talk about when they're dying when they are able to speak, very impressive people, some of them, amazing corporate careers, talking about their daughter that isn't able to be there. No one talks about his W-2s at that point, and that clarifies things. That the family is natural and the family is central, and then this too, that the family is crucial to the church's flourishing. And this is something that I think does not really have to be explicitly stated in Psalm 127, except to say that the way that they measure wealth in Psalm 127 is by children and not by money. And I think the insight there is that the whole thing is not determined by, life should not be determined by, my priorities, my career should not be determined by money necessarily, but by how it will build up my family, my loved ones. And that's also a perspective that what I'm saying is should be crucial to the church's thinking. The reason this doesn't have to be so explicitly stated in the Bible, either in the Old Testament or in the New, is because especially limitation of children is relatively unknown in the ancient world. 
It's not like it doesn't exist, and there are a lot of myths about this, but there is so much limitation of children among the Roman upper class that Augustus, when he comes to power, actually will pass, a, one of his edicts will be that Roman men must marry by a certain age or face severe penalties. Their concern is that they are going out of existence. The concern for family here being natural. So it's not something that Paul has to talk about, but let me by a little bit by way of analogy explain it this way, right? They don't have a shortage of children in the New Testament church, but they do have a shortage of money because many of them are poor, many of them are not doing well, many of the congregations are of low estate. That's how Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians. And because they have a shortage of money, Paul understands that they can't get along without that. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he becomes very clear and explicit about why money is needed for the collection that's going to go, not necessarily to the Corinthians, but to the extended church to relieve the suffering, especially in Judea. He's going to carry it there, right? He does at least one collection, maybe more. And the way that he explains this is there's kind of two ways to look at these earthly gifts. Okay? On one, from one perspective... If I sow sparingly, I will reap sparingly. If God gives me a gift and I say, I don't want much of that, then I will receive, in fact, very little from it. If I sow bountifully, I will reap bountifully. It's also the case that if, this is the other point, if the Corinthians themselves have money or Macedonians and Thessalonica or elsewhere have money, someone else might need it. So when I'm thinking about it that way, I realize that if I have a gift from God and I think about children the same way lots of people, pretty much all of us probably in our sinful nature think about money, which is the more I have, the better everything is. If I think about children that way, it's not so much that I understand what use this child will be to someone, to some congregation, to someone else's family, to someone else's life. I don't know what amazing things God will do through this child whom he has given me as a gift. That's not my responsibility any more than control over money was the responsibility of the Corinthians once it went off somewhere else. But that what I have received from God as a gift will in fact prove a gift to others. And then two, if I receive God's gifts bountifully and I expend my effort in the ways that I've been talking about, thinking of it as central to my life, giving and sacrificing for that family rather than for myself, I will receive in just the way that the Sermon on the Mount talks about receiving. That is that the children of God are not consumed by the worries that the world knows because we have a Father and because the psalmist has never seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging for bread. And that rather than founding my life upon my worries and then ordering my finances and my actions and everything according to my worries, I will instead order them according to God's promises. 
So a lot of matters that I've only had time to touch upon, education, family planning, all these sorts of things, these are not so much things that when I hear someone say, oh, I'm going you know, to send my kid to uh, this school so he can get a good job, that could be, that could be fine, it could be fine. My major concern is that we have for a long time and may fail to in the future understand that our life has always been constituted by God's promises and by God's institutions. I can't learn about what God has given and promised and how he blesses me through family and then turn away from it and say, that's not really for me, or the church collectively saying, that's not really for us. That's too weird. That's too extreme. That would be to measure God's word according to my preferences, my comfort level, whether or not something sounds weird. What I want to do, both individually and collectively, the church to do, is to begin to reorder life, not according to what feels easy or normal, which would be packing my children off to be educated by other people who will teach them the exact opposite of what I believe and what they hear from pastor on Sunday. What would be normal would be to order my life around the ease of retirement I'll someday be able to enjoy. What would be normal would be to put my parents away from me as they get older. What would be normal would be to stay on my phone when my children are present, not to talk, to engage in looking at whatever fresh outrage is on my phone, according to my preferred media source. That would be normal. Normal doesn't mean good. Normal doesn't mean godly. Normal doesn't mean that God blesses it. There may have been a time when we were less weird, and that's that would be great if those times came back. I don't enjoy being, and I try not to be, aggressively weird, but I, I drive an enormous vehicle, so, so now I'm pretty weird wherever I go publicly. I don't know what else to do about it. But what I do want to do, and what I would love for us to do as things like this build up over the years, is to understand what we are about. I don't know every tactic that would be good for founding more Lutheran schools. I don't know every tactic that would be good for passing on intergenerational knowledge that has generally been dropped in many cases. My dad is always talking about how nobody hunts anymore. I don't know what would be good in every single case. I do know that God has called family good and instituted it in paradise. I do know that God's gifts are given richly through the family. And I know that this is something that we can build. So I would encourage you, both today and I will also when we talk about the church and the community tomorrow, I would encourage you to think of yourselves not as people watching fresh outrages come in, passive, worried about threats, worried about what the next congressional or presidential election is going to bring, I would encourage you instead to think about life and the future the way your forefathers did when they built fortresses in the wilderness. They were pioneers. They were trying to defend what they had already built and extend what they wanted to build. They knew that it was hard. 
They knew that life was difficult and that they had real enemies who intended their destruction. And yet they built, and yet they strove, and yet they fought, and yet they won. So I would encourage you as we think about the family and about the church and about the community to think of yourselves as pioneers. You are past the time when there were good things to retreat into. You are now in the time where you must build the good thing, where you must plan, where you must dig, where you must set up what has not yet been set up. And that is scary, but it's scary in a different way than big tech is scary, right? <laughs> big tech is scary because it feels like Skynet is coming over me and I'm fleeing inside the building and now my capacity to handle movie references is exhausted, but, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, I do know that the guy is being hunted by Skynet in that movie, right? So, okay. You are in a wilderness. That's scary, but you can build something there. You are in a desolate place, but you can make the desert bloom. This is possible. You belong to Christ. All things are possible with him. We don't want to run our sense of the future out of what our screens give us, which for us, for people who are here today, is probably a sense of fear and apprehension. We want to run our sense of the future out of the fact that tomorrow and the next congressional election and the next presidential election, Jesus Christ is king over the nations, also over this nation. So let his word rule, first in the church, first in your family. Let his commandment be your guide. Don't worry so much about what the future will bring. This is where I find the martyrs absolutely inspiring, and I'll stop after this in a second and take questions or comments you guys have. I find them absolutely inspiring because they face, in many cases, a much bleaker reality than we do. And that's not to say that far bleaker things could not come and soon in certain parts of the United States or Canada especially. But that they faced definite bleakness. Cyprian, when he came to the Episcopal throne in Carthage, was deprived of all his property immediately. And yet he persevered as Bishop of Carthage until his martyrdom. Their sense of what they should do and how they should act and what they should say, especially when the magistrate would demand an answer as to why they would not commit idolatry along with all the rest of the world, so the magistrate said, was conditioned by the fact that Jesus Christ is king. So they said over and over and over again an image that I think clarifies all your thinking about family and children and education and so much else. That is that you, the Roman magistrate, the government, with, always with a pretense of legal authority, you can put me in a fire that burns for a time. But I want to escape the fire that burns forever and is not extinguished. I want to honor the king who has saved me. This is what Polycarp says when he dies at 86, being put into a fire. How can I turn against the one who saved me and has been such a kind master all my life? 
When I know who Jesus Christ is and I teach that to my family diligently, then I know what the future holds for me and for my family. I know him and the power of his resurrection. And with that hope, I can face anything. I'll take some questions now. Thank you. Um, anybody who wants to? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I started, I started with the family first because when people start with the church, and I mean, this is, I mean, this is like a, this is a professional vice we have, is talking about what is, could be wrong with a church is, is true, and there, are, and there are problems particular to the church that I'm going to talk about tomorrow, because they're problems sort of particular to groups of sinners. But what I find are that often the most virulent, both personal and interpersonal problems people have run out of the family. And so I started there because it seems that that has been in free fall even longer than, say, like church attendance numbers. You know what I'm saying? And so I just, I, the reason I started there was because it seemed like the place of greatest and most immediate conflict. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Anybody? Yes, sir. Fair. 
Yeah. Uh, and then coaching the, the younger men on how to do that. Right. Yeah. So um, let me do the second one first because I think the answer is a little less complex, which is um, whatever, you know, he has a variety of different theological justifications for the polity of the Missouri Synod, um, which, which is to some extent, as far as I understand it, the polity of anything that came in or out of the Synodical Conference, so that would be Wells, Els, et cetera, I think, um, is that it presumes as Republican government presumes that even if you are not a professional in, in the institution, you own responsibility for it and for its, its orthodoxy and for its life. And optimally, I think that is fantastic. You are right that that requires, uh, that requires most of all trained men who will lead a congregation along with the pastor that the pastor cannot do everything and cannot be a father to all the families of the congregation, right? Um, you can have a wonderful relationship with the kids in your school or your confirmation class, and especially if you have a school, you're with them a lot. You're still not their dad. I mean, that's what I would tell people at the beginning of con I can't replace you. So you can, I will help you figure out how to teach it, but I can't replace you. I just can't. I'll never be this kid's dad. So it's going to be really powerful if you go over it with him before he goes off to school in the morning. Way more powerful than the two hours he spends with me. So I think that that has to be intentional if those cultural links have been broken, which I think in many, many, many places they have. Yeah, there's no process. We're not, we're not thinking in those terms, but I think we have to. If we recognize that creation is set up in a certain way, and that male headship is not just sort of like a, a way that you arrange affairs in the church or voting or something. It's the way creation is set up. And when male headship fails, you have big problems. Yeah. Um, your, your first question about institutions is that I think you're right to distinguish between, say, networks and institutions. Institutions, especially in an American context, usually start as networks. Um, and so they start in an informal way, they then develop into something. So guys that are writing under pseudonyms in the early 1770s eventually become first such and such of the United States, uh, and the guys who are putting out self-published newspapers in the 1840s eventually become the first president of Concordia Seminary St. Louis and the first president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And, and now those are all obviously institutions in church and state. And so I think it's historically naive if, and usually this is younger men, because it's easy when you're young to see the faults of the old and much harder to understand their responsibilities. Uh, it's usually a, a fault that younger men have if they are historically naive enough to think that their network will not eventually become an institution in some fashion. It doesn't have to be built in exactly the same way if they've recognized that building it in this way has been bad or it gives the state too much control over the school or whatever the specific institution is. But eventually, the, everyone produces institutions. <laughs> you know, And so that's something just to sort of keep in mind when you are building networks or consciously trying to build a new institution is that not everything that was done in the past that you're trying to correct 
is either totally avoidable uh, and, and also you will have your own problems. You will have your own institutional problems. And I think that you're right is that the part of the intergenerational bitterness, which is very much fostered by media, um, intergenerational bitterness, I think, is, is where it is correctly, not correctly felt, but a result of a correct diagnosis. The correct diagnosis is not that institutions are evil. It's that when you are given guardianship over something or trusteeship, you are responsible to pass it on as good as or better than you found it. Yeah. And that when that fails, there's obvious bitterness. Yeah, no question. Other questions or comments? Are, are we good? Are we okay on time? Four minutes? Okay. So anybody have a three-minute question <laughs> or a three-minute comment? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You touched slightly on it a little bit. Yeah. 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 Where do you go? Where, where would you put yourself also with the gift of like the elderly? Yeah. The right. I mean, we, as a society, we've kind of gone away from dealing with that home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The elderly and children are often kind of pushed into places where we don't have to see them most of the time, um, or or deal with them. Um, and and that's um, with kids. That's also like uh, how busy I coach baseball and. Most of my kids are playing three sports at the same time. So their parents see them in the evening, but they, they really only see them playing a sport. They don't, the coach is the person, I mean, I talk to them more in some cases. With the elderly, scripturally, that is such a blessing. The blessing is just, may you see your children's children. May you see them, okay? So uh, that presumes physical presence, that also presumes from the perspective of the elderly, ordering your life around that being more of a possibility than less of a possibility, and your kids make decisions, you don't have control over them when they're adults, obviously, but you want that as much as you possibly can. From the perspective of younger generations rising up, there has, you, we have to recognize the duty to care for them before all others. Um, and where um, my first call was in Amish country, and the Amish, notably, you never see Amish people in nursing homes. Now, they, that requires certain economic decisions and consequences, and they usually have a little house built on the property, but the congregation actually will help you not only build your first home, but also will help you, if you need it, build so grandma and grandpa can stay there. The congregation does that. Okay. So that's where the church needs to recognize and help support people, not only training younger men, training younger families, but also allowing us to honor our father and our mother when they're no longer able to physically help us the way they did when we were younger. Yeah. That was a, maybe a two and a half minute question. So yeah, go, yes, sir, go ahead. Yeah, it does. It does. Right, right, right. And I think, I think that, I mean, I don't know that everyone is cut out to live on the same property with everybody else. Um, the, I mean, the difference with the Amish is they've been training for it. That's, that's how they know how to live, right? But even if you're distant, I think one of the things to plan for, and you, know, you, you see it keenly when there is a lack of it, is personal presence with each other as much as you can. Because when that's not there, 
that one of those chief joys of old age is not that your body's working better than it ever has before, but that you do get to see your children's children. And that has a certain joy beyond even your own children, yeah. So organizing, I think that sort of centrality is gonna look that way, yeah. All right, I think we're at time, so thank you guys. Uh, I'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>